How you doing, lady? I am probably significantly better than you are. <laughs> How are you, lady? I'm sorry. Now I'm making her laugh and it's all terrible. It sounds a lot worse than it is. I'm much better than I was because I didn't have a voice for several days. Ugh. Yeah. Lung infections. Gotta love them. But yeah, I'm fine. You know, like definitely on the mend. Glad to be back. Yay. You needed the week off for sure. I did. I needed the week off. It gave me time to catch up on many a show (gasps) that I have been behind on. What did you watch? Tell me. So I finally watched season three of What We Do in the Shadows because I'm epically behind on that. It's wonderful. Yay. It's so good. It's so good. Like, I guess everyone else saw the new episode of The Problem with Jon Stewart because it's gone viral and a half. I saw some clips from it, but I did not watch the whole thing. Yes. And I was so infuriated after watching the clip that I was like, I don't even know if I could have made it through the whole episode. I mean, so full disclosure, I think we've discussed this, but I was not a fan of Jon Stewart. The Daily Show was always on. Yeah, it was always on. I don't find him particularly funny. I must block this information out every time you tell me because I just refuse to accept it. And and I respect that. Uh, I remember (laughs) it always being on in whatever dorm I was in, like someone's dorm in, in college. And I just, I didn't realize that it was a character that he was doing. And I, I always found him very like obnoxious and kind of holier than thou and just not not particularly funny. And it wasn't till I kind of pretty recently that I saw all of his work with like the veterans and every like the 9-11, you know, first yeah. responders that I was like, Oh, I'm like, who the fuck is this person? Like that, I'm interested in that person. Hi, hello, nice to meet you. Yeah, Yeah. that's, that's, oh, fuck. And uh, so like I could watch him, I think he's an excellent interviewer. I could just watch him do interviews all day long. He really is. Yeah, and this last, this latest episode is, or I guess by the time this comes out, it'll be the, the, it's the first episode of this season. And half of the episode is, an interview and it's so good and he's such a great interviewer and it's it is wildly enraging yes but it's also very important and i think everyone should watch at least the interview you can find it kind of it just has gone wildly viral as it should so you can find it mostly anywhere so i watched that and i did wait till like two nights ago because my lungs were not in a place to handle crying a lot for the the first half of this. I did see the first half of The Last of Us. (gasps) And? So one, bone to pick with literally everyone. (laughs) Okay, lay it on me. Who has mentioned The Last of Us to me. This girl included. This girl included. Yep. But it might not apply to you. No one mentioned to me that Craig Mazin who created and wrote one of what I believe to be the finest TV shows in the history of television, Chernobyl, and one of my favorite TV shows, is the creator and writer of The Last of Us. I did know this, and I did not, I did not mention this. No one did. You, it wasn't just you. No one did. <laughs> Damn it. That was how I was going to sell it, too. Shit. I should have known. Oh, I would have watched it immediately. So I, because I watch all of the things, you know, I watched the like inside the episode, whatever. And then he's, and I was like, I'm sorry, is Craig Mason part of this? And I was like, oh yeah, he wrote every episode and is the creator of the series. I'm like, that's why this is excellent. Fucking obviously. Yes. 
I feel like Neil Druckmann is always the one who comes to mind. Sure, because he created the the game. The game, yeah. And I th- believe was like an, a consultant. He's credited as a writer, but I believe it's just like because of the game. He didn't actually write the episodes. Yes. But was like a consultant on it. I think he had some input, but not actually writing dialogue. Exactly. Also, nothing could have prepared me for episode three with Nick Offerman, uh, Love of My Life. I know, and Murray Bartlett. I cried so much. Like, pretty up there, like, not quite Stranger Things last episode, but, like, gave it a run for its money. Damn. Okay. I cried a lot. Like, so much. Oh, my God. That's what everyone says. And now I'm actually thinking there's something wrong with me emotionally that I like. I mean, you did say that, that you know, it, they welled up. Welled up. That's more than usual. That is more than usual. This most recent episode got me too. And I got a little, a little teary. No, but it's great. It's really great. Yes. I was like, I, that made my week. <laughs> I never thought it wasn't going to be. I just, one was uh, pressed, didn't have time. And then, you know, this happened. And then it just, every episode, social media is like, oh my God, I cried so much. And then I was like, I don't think my lungs can handle uh, me crying a lot. So I, I waited until like a week <laughs> of me being diagnosed with this. I'm like, okay, I think I'm, I'm in a better spot to do this. And I was. I didn't like, you know, have to go to the hospital or anything, but I did cry a lot in that episode. Well, I appreciate your sacrifice and your willingness to exacerbate your condition just to watch The Last of Us because I'm so excited. And I kind of wish I had known that before we started this episode because I would have, we could have like spoiled some stuff and talked talked about things. Did you just finish episode three? I, I finished episode four. Okay. Yeah. <gasps> I know. Last uh, episode's season finale is this week, this Sunday. Yeah. Next, this week? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I know. I was like, oh my God, I can just kind of like binge this whole thing. Ah, oh, that's actually kind of the best. I hated waiting week to week. It was such a, such a tease. I mean, but there's also something great about it because you're like, oh, that's true. You have to like wait, you know, delayed yes. gratification. There you go. It's excellent. Uh, have you been listening to the uh, the companion podcast? No, but I've been meaning to start it. Mm-hmm. I was like, it obviously always gets recommended at the end of the episode. And I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. I always forget about that. I need to watch it. Because I love the inside the episodes at the at the end. Yeah, totally. I, I remember uh, they, they did one for Chernobyl, which also, if you haven't seen Chernobyl, literally drop everything and fucking watch it. It's a fucking work of art, like top to bottom. It's incredible. I don't think I finished it, so I should probably go back and finish it. Oh, my God. I watched the first couple of episodes, and it was amazing, but I don't know what happened, and I never finished it. It's so good. And then, like, and the Companion podcast is excellent. And, oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's not surprising at all to me knowing, like, when you realize that Craig Mason's did both, you're like, oh, I mean, yes, obviously. But even just the, the storytelling in Chernobyl is very interesting because... Like, there's no spoiler here. Like, the, you know, these are all based on, based on things that actually happened. I was like, yeah, this is, this happened. So the series, it's like, a, it starts like a couple years after the event. And then it goes like right into like Night Of. Like, this is what happened. And then the last episode, it starts like the morning of. And just like people going about their lives. And just the way that the entire series has been done. There's like this like false hope you have watching it of like, maybe something will change and like this won't happen. But it's like, no, it has to. Like, that's just what it is. But, and it's somehow even more tragic, like having it, you know, it all goes down 
And then the last episode is like morning of leading up to everything. Ugh. It's it's so excellent. And The Last of Us is excellent. The four episodes I've seen, I'm sure the rest of it is because every <laughs> every Monday I get like a, you know, I see on social like people like, oh, I cried so much Last of Us, well, whatever. And how great it is because it is. It's great. It's fantastic. I'm so excited. I'm so happy you watched it. And this honestly like made my week. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I know that seems very silly. I love that. I love that it made your week. But I was so, I was so worried you were going to watch it and be like, yeah, like I'm sorry. I didn't care for it. It's not my, it's not to my taste. No, it's excellent. I, you know, it, it's, I, like, I, 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 I don't think it's fair to say that I'm a, I'm into the apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic thing, but I do, like, I really loved like, the Dawn of the Dead remake. I really loved. Oh, Yes. And that's such the vibe of like, everything's okay. And you go to bed and you wake up and it's not okay. And no one knows what the fuck is going on. You just have to run right now. Yep. And it's just, yeah, it's it's really, really well done. And, and you know, you give a fuck about the people, which is a, a huge issue I have with a lot of horrors that they just kind of like do the gore and the guts and everything and not, they don't invest in their characters. So you're like, this is unfortunate, but I don't care. This is happening to these people, which is not the case. Definitely not. In this. It just everyone's fucking nailing it. Uh, and then just on a very random side note that's tangentially tied to The Last of Us, someone posted a picture of Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal and captioned it, they are the same age difference as Leonardo DiCaprio and his girlfriend. And I'm like, that's fucking disgusting. Oh, okay. That is that is very creepy. Because Leo won't date you if you're over 25. Ew. Yeah. It's real gross. It is real gross. Yep. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to move on from this. I, really, I kind of don't either. <laughs> Anything else happening with your week? No, no. I was in one of those moods where I just like couldn't really handle any like new shows. So I just kind of rewatched old shows and then I watched The Last of Us and that was like my one exception. Mm -hmm. uh, I watched a weird indie movie, but I was not impressed. So I feel like I'm not even going to mention it. Okay. I did because one of my like, go-to happy shows is The Detour. So I rewatched that and I saw the scene that you're in and I like oh. lost my mind in <laughs> my living room. I still haven't seen that shit. Because I kind of had forgotten that. And I like looked up <laughs> and I was like, that is fucking Monique right there sitting next to Jason Jones, NBD. Playing a sex worker as per usual. Yeah. Did I look good? I've never seen it. You did. Fantastic. You looked hot. Great. Amazing. Yeah. Love it. So yeah, that made my week too. It's like <laughs> my little Monique fix in the middle of the week. <laughs> yeah, because you didn't get one last week. I didn't. There you go. I'm glad that you still you still got a, a Monique fix. That's hilarious. I did. <laughs> I was like, so yeah, that's it on my end. Do you have a spooky paranormal story for me this week? I do. <gasps> and it's very funny because I wanted to cover part of this topic, but I didn't know how to do it. And it was kind of because it, it might have been like way too big of a thing to cover. But then I watched Paranormal Witness and it gets touched upon in this. And I was like, perfect. Yes. You know I love Paranormal Witness. It's real good, girl. It's so good. It's one of the better paranormal shows, in my opinion. Absolutely. I'm very here for it. So I'm not going to say what the episode title is, but I'm doing an episode of Paranormal Witness. Ew. <laughs> 
additional sources, bbc.com, dailychella.com, hemisphericinstitute.org, colorado.edu, 52perfectdays.com, ucr.fbi.gov, statista.com, and sci-fi.com. In 2006, Chris Garibay was living with his wife and son, Alec, in a decent part of Juarez, Mexico. But Chris and his wife were having some marital difficulties, so to give this situation some space, Chris decided to move out. Chris had nowhere to go and needed to find a place as soon as possible. And as he was driving around downtown, he saw a sign on an apartment building advertising apartments for rent. He called the number right away and asked the person on the other end if he could stop by to look at the apartment right now. And the thing is, the apartment is in downtown Juarez, which anyone who knows anything about Juarez knows it's not a safe place. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I already have concerns. Ghosts aside, you're in danger. 10,000 fucking percent. Yep. For those who don't know, Juarez gained a notorious reputation as being a violent place in the 90s due to the high street crime related to the drug cartels that operate in the area. In 2019, which is the most recent statistic I could find, there were 34,588 homicides in Mexico. For perspective, that same year, the number of homicides in the United States, which is almost three times the population of Mexico, was 16,425. Damn. Girl, that is wild. I don't think I realized the scale of that. Yeah, that's why I like I like giving scale and perspective. The, or the magnitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, fun, horrific fact, in 2020, the following year, the uh, murder rate tripled in the United States. Oh! I wonder why. It's not like anything was happening that was uh, really stressful or fucked everyone's life up. Yeah, totally fine. <laughs> and things in Mexico, specifically Juarez, have not really improved in that time. Regardless of what some travel blogs may tell you, because let me fucking tell you. No. Girl, uh, I looked up a fucking travel blog called 52 Perfect Days with the title, Is Juarez Safe to Visit My Trip to This Mexico Border Town, which was written on December 5th of last year. And the author is very insistent that it is absolutely safe and worth the visit to Juarez, but does offer these few recommendations for visiting, which include one, don't travel alone. Two, don't display obvious wealth, friends, expensive jewelry, for example, and friends. Three, visit during daylight hours. Four, stick to busy areas. Five, if you're traveling out of the way places in Juarez, take an Uber. Six, brush up on your Spanish. Seven, staying clear of any illegal activity, particularly involving drug purchase slash smuggling. Eight, get good travel insurance. Wow. So if anyone is familiar with the Fear City pamphlets that were handed out in the 70s and 80s in New York City, that it was like, the cops are not going to help you. And if you decide to go to Manhattan, that's your fucking bad. Like, do you? Most of the things that are listed in this fucking travel blogger as like recommendations are also listed on the Fear City pamphlet. This is insane. And that's when New York was at its fucking worst. This is insane. And... Very dangerous. Like, don't be telling this to people. Don't be like, it's super safe. Just don't only go during daylight hours. Don't go by yourself. Don't show any sort of money. Like, no, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous fucking place. Hi. Yeah, very obviously. That is insane and wildly dangerous to make it seem like everything's fine. Yeah, and in the in the fucking article, she's like, I mean, there are places in New York City and Detroit and Chicago I wouldn't feel safe walking in. So like, it's the same thing. I'm like, I don't think so. No, 
No, it's not. The murder rate data begs to differ. Thank you. Exactly. So Chris, who is Mexican and lives in Juarez, knows that downtown Juarez is not a safe place to be in, but he's in a tight spot. He needs to move ASAP. And it's also important to note that even though he moved out, he's still paying for the house his wife and son are living in, in addition to the rent that he will be renting. So money is super tight and he basically just has to take what he can get. Chris tells Paranormal Witness that as he was waiting for someone to arrive to show him the apartment, quote, I was a little nervous. You never know who you might meet in Juarez, end quote, which is not remotely what the fuck this travel blogger is like, oh my God, is it me? Like, I can't. Yeah, this guy's from there. He knows what the fuck is up. Exactly. So someone shows up and Chris says, quote, I knew instantly that this guy was not only in the real estate business, end quote, alluding to the fact that maybe he was with the cartels or in the drug trade. I don't know. It's, it's very like, he doesn't elaborate on it, but he's like, this is not his only gig whatever the fuck that means. He's got a side job. Yeah, exactly. So the man takes him to the apartment on the second floor and lets Chris in, and the place is a fucking mess. Not only that, the windows were painted black. Oh, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. You want that natural light. That's not good. Yeah, and when he's like, hey, so like, what the fuck is this about? The man said that the previous tenant just didn't like the sunlight. What is he, a vampire? Get out of here. Dude, so Chris said, quote, I had to admit, it made me feel a little uneasy, but I didn't have a choice. I needed to move somewhere quickly. That place would work, end quote. That being said, as soon Chris walked into the apartment, he felt there was a dark energy in the place. But like I said, Chris is in a tight spot and he needs a place pronto and he doesn't have the money to get a place in a safer area. So he moves into the apartment. Chris's brother worked as a cop for the federal government of Mexico and he was also stationed in Juarez at the time. Even he expressed concern over Chris moving into such a dangerous area, but Chris actually felt safer knowing that his brother was nearby. So Chris moves in and almost immediately, weird shit starts happening. Chris describes himself as a very routine kind of guy. Every night when he would come home from work, first thing he would do would be to put the deadbolt lock on, then hang his keys on the key hook by the door. He did this every day. Chris said, quote, this is my life. I know where everything is. End quote. Also, Chris and I are not the same person. (laughs) Do I have ghosts? Am I just forgetful? Who knows? Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, now I, as soon I I did get a, like a key hook thing. And as soon as I got that, I stopped losing my keys because it's like, oh, that just goes there. And I'm like, organization. What a fucking concept. (laughs) But I can't find a lot of, a lot of my shit all the time. I just haven't organized it. I'll be like, I'm going to organize this. And then I'll remember where it was before I organized it, not in the new place. Yep. I'm that person. Yeah. I can feel that. Mm -hmm. So one night, Chris was asleep in his room when he heard a sound that woke him up. It was the sound of a bell. And he realized that it was the bell that was on his keychain attached to his keys. Oh, no. All right. I already have chills. This is not not going anywhere good. Mm -hmm. But the noise stopped and he went back to sleep. The following morning, Chris got up and embarked on his morning routine, which is the same as every morning. Again, he's a routine guy. He gets his coat, his backpack, and he goes to get his key off of the key hook to go to work, and his keys aren't there, even though that he knew that he'd hung them up on the key hook the night before, as he had always done. But they're gone. And Chris is the only person living in this apartment. So he starts frantically looking all over the place, and that's when he remembers that he had heard something the night before. 
And he's literally looking at all sorts of improbable places. And he looks under the couch. And there they are. Chris said, quote, They were not just on the edge of the couch. They were like thrown far underneath the couch. The only way they could have ended up down there was if somebody had physically put them there. I was the only person there at the apartment. I knew I had hung them up on the hook as I do every day. I just couldn't explain how that happened, end quote. And that's when other unexplained things started happening. One night, Chris was in the kitchen preparing something to eat. When he was done, he put everything away, grabbed his plate, and took it to the living room to watch some TV. And as soon as he got to the living room, he heard a noise coming from the kitchen that sounded like doors rattling. When Chris went to investigate, all of the cabinet doors, even the ones he couldn't reach, were wide open. No, no. I know. Full full body chills. I, I... It's literally like fucking poltergeist. Mm-mm. You step in the other room, you come back and you're like, what the fuck is this? And it's just... It's the idea that they can mm-hmm. that they can affect physical matter. They can fuck with shit. Yes, yes. Yes. Exactly. Because if you can touch doors and move doors, you can touch me and move me. And fucking kill me and shit. Yeah. Yes. Like, it's one thing to see an apparition or whatever. That's creepy. It's when they start fucking with your shit, dude. That's when I'm like, burn it down. Get the fuck out of there. I can't. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. He said, quote, Then I'm thinking, am I crazy? I had just been in that kitchen moments before, end quote. So without even thinking, Chris just closes all the cabinets one by one. But it's this incident where he realizes that there's something happening in his apartment. Yes. After five months alone in this apartment, (gasps) dealing with this shit, Chris asks his good friend Guillermo to move into the spare room. Guillermo was like a brother to Chris, and Chris felt uneasy about living alone, so... He was really grateful for the company. And here's the thing. Chris was totally upfront with Guillermo about what he had experienced in the apartment. He was like, oh, no, it's totally great. Like, okay. he tells him flat out. He's like, he's all about the missing keys, the kitchen cabinets. Like, he's like, BT tubs. This is what the fuck's happening. Okay. And Guillermo totally brushed it off. He was like, Chris, you're under a lot of stress with everything going on with your family. And that's just, you're just seeing things like this is not happening. Move in. You'll fucking find out. <laughs> I mean, this is the epitome of fucking around and finding out. Just saying. Right? Okay. I'm glad he told him, though, because I was like, if he didn't, like, let him know and he was just like, hey, you want to move in? Like, BFFs, I would be like, that's fucked. No, Chris is, seems like a super upstanding guy. Like, he seems like a legit dude. Okay. And, of course, it's not long into moving into the apartment that Guillermo starts having experiences of his own. Turns out Guillermo, like Chris, is also a routine guy. Every night when he comes home from work, he puts his keys and wallet in a bowl on a table in the hallway by the door. So one day he came home, put his keys and wallet in the bowl and went to the kitchen to make himself a snack, specifically a bowl of cereal, which I think is adorable at like 6 p.m. Yeah. Especially for like a grown man. I love a midnight bowl of cereal. I know it's not midnight in the story, but like whenever, wherever, let's fucking do it. Yeah, exactly. What's your cereal of choice? Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Oh, fuck yeah. And I'll be all. It's best best cereal, in my opinion. I have a lot of other, like, ones that are up there. But that one, if I only have one cereal for the rest of my life, it's fucking Cinnamon Toast Crunch. All right. I'm a, I'm a Captain Crunch gal. Really? Yeah, I know. You masochist. I love it. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, yeah. It tears the roof of your mouth up so badly. <laughs> I mean, it never did to me. But, yeah. I am shocked by this. All right. 
It's a complaint that a lot of people have shared. And I'm like, I've not felt had that experience. Good for you, though. I was like, it's great. I enjoy it, but I can't do it because it it brutalizes the roof of my mouth every time. And I also don't believe in in milk and cereal. The fuck do you eat it with? What do you mean? No, by itself. Okay. I, I do that sometimes. Almost like chips. Yeah. Just, but I do like it with milk. I don't like the sogginess. Eat it quickly or you like I tilt the bowl and I push all the cereal kind of up to the top <laughs> and then I strategically like bring it down and I'll eat it so it stays crispy. <laughs> I love you so much. I have a system. Oh, clearly. I, I You know what? I would be shocked if you didn't. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> so Guillermo takes out the bowl from the cupboard, then the cereal, then the milk from the refrigerator. Then he opens the drawer to get a spoon. And when he opens the drawer, he sees his wallet in the drawer. Oh, no, 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 no. That's so creepy. Guillermo says, quote, In that moment, I felt a chill run through my body because I couldn't believe it was my wallet. End quote. Like, he's like, no, this, it has to be someone else. It has to be, like, Chris's wallet. It can't be, like, that he's, like, randomly has in the cutlery. I just put it in the bowl. Yeah. In his fucking kitchen. So he returns to the table, to the bowl, and sees his wallet isn't there. And he looks through the wallet, and sure enough, it's his fucking wallet. And while he thought that maybe Chris had been playing a prank on him, this is also a thing. I, I asked a friend of mine about this when I when I started doing the story. I didn't come from a family that played pranks on each other. So it would never occur to me that a grown, as as an adult, that the person I'm living with is just playing pranks on me. That's insane to me. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with you on that. My family didn't really like play pranks either, but I guess it is one of those things like if you don't believe in ghosts or the supernatural, like that is the only logical explanation for how it got there if you were not the one who put it there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't, I don't really get that. And I, I know there are those couples who like prank each other and they think it's like fun and funny. I don't know how you can be in a relationship like that. Like how do you even trust your partner? 10,000 percent. I have never understood that. I like same. Uh, no, no, no. And like, like whenever there was like jokes or whatever that was, you know, like silly things that, you know, with my, they weren't pranks, but it'd just be like, no, I didn't see that thing. It's like immediately it's like, no, just kidding. I did. Like, it wasn't like these pranks had gone for years and shit that people do. No, that uh, I don't know. So he thinks that, that Chris is playing a prank on him, but the apartment's empty. And he goes outside of the apartment and he looks up and he sees that the light above their apartment door is covered in black moths. But when he looked at all of the other lights above the other apartments, there was absolutely nothing. Guillermo said, quote, I felt a shiver. I'm not superstitious, but I was worried by the moths above our door, end quote. Why was he worried? Because in Mexico, black moths are a symbol of death. Since Aztec times, it is thought that if a black moth enters a home where someone is ill, the ailing person will die. In Mexico, black moths are referred to as the butterfly of death. That Which is badass for moths, but you know. Yeah, but like he goes outside and literally the only light that has black moths is his light. I don't like moths to begin with, so absolutely not. Mm-mm. Match, struck, burn it down. Yeah. While Guillermo doesn't share his experiences with Chris until much, much later, the following morning, he told Chris that he believed him when he said that there was something in the apartment which filled Chris with relief. I mean, I also am like, how did that combo go? Because like, he didn't he didn't tell him anything about this. He was just like, oh, by the way, I, I believe you. 
wasn't Chris like, why? Or I think maybe he was just so relieved. Like, thank you. I'm not crazy. I'm not imagining shit. No follow-up questions. No follow-up. Exactly. Zero follow-up. Some time passes. And one night, Chris is in his apartment. And he plays that game that we all do, where he opens the refrigerator door looking for something to eat, but he doesn't like any of the options he has available at home. So he decides to go out to eat instead (laughs) and not be financially responsible. Too real. Yes. The realness. So he gets his things together, gets his keys, and is ready to leave when he hears the refrigerator door open behind him. And it's not just a little bit open, it's completely wide open. So he's like, okay, that's weird. So he closes the door and he plays with it a little bit, opening it and closing it to see if there's something wrong with it that it just like doesn't properly shut. And it does, it shuts, no problem. So he closes the door. And again, he makes his way to the apartment door to leave. And again, he hears the refrigerator door open on its own. So Chris is in the hallway and the light in the kitchen is turned off. And the kitchen, it's like, there's not a door to the the kitchen. It's just like an opening. And the only light emanating from the kitchen is coming from the open refrigerator door. So Chris is still in the hallway and he reaches his hand into the kitchen on the inside wall to turn on the light in the kitchen. And when he does, he feels a hand grab his hand. No. Mm -hmm. Chris said, quote, I was terrified. I knew I had felt something in there. It felt like a man's hand. I had to go check it out. So I summoned some courage. I reach in again, and there's nobody there. Part of me was trying to justify it. The other part of me was just completely blown away. There was no doubt in my mind that there was something paranormal happening in my apartment, end quote. All the while, Guillermo is also continuing to have his own experiences. One night, he got back home from work when he realized that he had left his keys in the office. However, when he got to the door, he heard the deadbolt unlock from the inside and the door opened, but there was no one at the door. He walks in and he sees a dark figure in the corner who Guillermo assumes is Chris. And he's like, okay. And he walks down the hallway to his room and passes by Chris's bedroom on the way, only to see Chris's bedroom door open and Chris fast asleep in his bed. (sighs) Girl, I can't. Also, it's like, here's the thing, like with shit like this too, they're in fucking downtown Juarez. This could be someone in your apartment ready to fucking murder you. Like, it doesn't even, like like you said earlier, it's like, paranormal shit aside, like, we're already, like, in danger, girl, just because we're in fucking downtown Juarez. Seriously. you like, eh, dark figure in the room. It's fine. It's, it's probably my roommate. Right. So Guillermo is like, fuck, who opened the door then? And gripped with terror, Guillermo goes back to where he saw the figure and there's nothing there. And he realizes that whatever opened the door was not a physical being. Chris's sister, Erica, even had her own spooky experience while visiting her brother. And just for the record, I'm completely obsessed with her because she doesn't sugarcoat anything. She said of the apartment, quote, the first time I went there, I thought it was a horrible place to live. (laughs) (laughs) It was an ugly apartment and it was in a very ugly place downtown. Even to park my car outside of the building, I was afraid. End quote. So she's like, this apartment sucks. It was in a terrible place. I hate it. She's not beating around the bush. I love it. So she gets to Chris's apartment on the second floor, knocks on the door, and no one answers. And while she's waiting, she too notices the black moths on the light above her brother's apartment and also took notice that that was the only apartment that had the black moths. So thinking that maybe her brother didn't hear her knock, she calls him up telling him that she's at his door and asks where he is. 
And he tells her that he's not at the apartment, that he's still at work. And Erica's like, oh, okay, well, that's a bummer. So she hangs up and walks to her car. She said the entire walk to her car, she felt like someone was watching her from her brother's apartment. And she looked over to her brother's window and saw a figure looking at her. And again, she also thinks she's being pranked by her brother. So she calls up Chris telling him like, I fucking see you in the window. But he insists that both he and Guillermo are not at home, but that they're at work. And Erica's like, well, then there's someone in your apartment. Chris said, quote, I didn't really want to go back to the apartment that evening, but I had no options, end quote. He said when he walked in, the apartment felt eerie and too quiet. So later that night, Chris was in bed, lying on his side, facing away from his bedroom door, which was open, and pouring in light from the hallway. When all of a sudden, he sees a shadow obstructing the light from the hallway. And he admits he wanted to turn around, but that he was afraid, which, yeah, I get it. I There was a place I stayed in New Orleans years ago, and I sleep on my side, and I had the very, like, I knew that there was something behind me, and I was like, I am not turning around to see what the fuck that is. No. Which is like... Deny, deny, deny. And it wasn't even that. It, exactly. It wasn't even like, oh, there's like, a, I can see that a light has been obstructed. I was like, all of a sudden, I was like, there's something behind me, and I... I'm just going to keep looking at the wall until this thing goes away because I'm not fucking looking. So that's so terrifying. I mean, but he's much braver than I am because he mustered up the courage to turn around. But guess what? Nobody was fucking there. And he's still in a bit of denial thinking that maybe it was Guillermo pulling a prank on him. So he goes around the apartment looking and no one, not even Guillermo, is in the apartment. Chris said, quote, there was nobody there. And now it seemed even more frightening. There was an actual figure haunting my apartment, end quote. Chris felt that it was time to start opening up to his family about what was going on. And he was invited to a family get-together, and his cousin could tell that he was depressed. And when she asked how he was doing, Chris, who was just tired of holding it in, flat out is like, my apartment's haunted. And he tells her everything. He's like, he tells her everything that's been happening in the last several months, about the keys, like everything. And his cousin's like, are you bullshitting me right now? And he tells her that he's not kidding and that he's terrified and he's telling her the truth. And she believes him. She said she knew he wasn't lying because, quote, it's very hard for a Mexican man to acknowledge that he's scared, especially in front of a woman, end quote. Ooh. Yeah. Machismo, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So she tells him that she has a friend who's a curandera or a healer and that she might be able to help him. I'd be like, call her now. Get her on the line. <laughs> mm-hmm. Chris said, quote, I used to think of myself as a skeptic. After what was happening at the apartment, I was willing to try all options, end quote. Now, here's the thing. So my parents and my grandfather have been to curanderas, and like, I am the woo-woo person in my family, even though everyone's Catholic. Like, they are not woo-woo people. Like, you basically go to a curandera when like every other situation has like not worked out for you. And my dad and my grandfather both had, and it was a thing like when they were told about this, they both had shingles and it was really, 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 really bad. And they'd gone to the dermatologist and like nothing was being done. Like they were given all this medication. It wasn't helping. And my mom told my godmother about it. And like in a very like hushed, hush, like there's this person I know, a curandera, and like, you know, she helped my my aunt, blah, 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 blah. And they went, and like, and the crazy thing is like, my, my mom said that they went, the woman never touched my dad, 
And he was like, okay. She was like, okay, we're going to like close her eyes and pray. And then they, you know, opened their eyes. My mom said that my dad looked like 10 years younger, that he, he looked completely different. And she was like, okay, you're healed. It's going to start like flaking away and like never touched him, never gave him a thing, like nothing. And my dad is a huge, like he's always in a rush. And my mom was like, he like didn't, like he was just like very chill and like didn't want to leave. And she's this, this particular woman, she doesn't have a specific price she pays, like a, a price she charges rather, because she's like, this is a gift I've been, I've gotten from God and it would be fucked up if like I price people out who can't afford it. So it's like, whatever you want to give me, like, that's cool. Wow. Yeah. And literally my mom, like the next day, the shingles started like drying up like the next day. And the dermatologist was like, oh, like, are those meds like finally working? Whatever. It's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. The medicine's finally working. So this is like, a th- I mean, I'm sure there are people who go to curanderos for anything, but for people who are very like Catholic or even just like skeptical, like that is like, I've tried everything and nothing is fucking working. Then fuck it. I'm going to go. Like literally I have zero things to lose, which is where Chris is at this point. I am so intrigued. Like hook a bitty up, girl. Like who, who do you have on speed dial? Yeah. I mean, well, what the crazy thing is too, is that my godmother went to her father, like the, the, the curandera, because it was her father, the, the father was the curandera. And then he treated like her aunt and my grandfather for the shingles. Again, it was like prayer, no touching, like, and then it was done. And then he died. But that I guess like his daughter has like the same gift. I'm very intrigued by this for the record. I know. And it was I like my godmother. I remember <laughs> my godmother told the story like no one else. She was like an incredible storyteller. And she's wildly funny. And she talked about like, again, these are like Catholic, you know, even though they're Catholic, they're like very reasonable people. They're not into like voodoo or any like nothing, nothing, nothing like that. And she like takes her aunt who like has stopped eating. She hasn't eaten for three days because of like how sick this this uh, shingles thing is making her and that allegedly like it's like kind of like going all around her torso and like there's like allegedly like if the two ends meet you basically die because it's like really bad jesus okay so she's like coming up on this she stopped eating and they're like fuck it we literally have no other option and they go and my godmother was like i was like i don't know what the fuck is gonna happen what crazy shit we're gonna walk into she's gonna be like throwing shells of this gonna be like chickens and shit she's like i don't fucking know and no it's just like very Catholic, prayers, whatever. The next day, her aunt wakes up and she's like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. And it like flaked off. And it was like, girl, I don't fucking know. I, I'm speechless. That's what's happening right now. Damn. All right. And when when my my dad had cancer, my mom took her took him to, to the curandera. And again, prayers, whatever. And she's like, you're cured. And like, he's good, you know? I mean, he had to go to like, he had to have surgery and chemo and the whole bit. But like, he's, you know, in remission. He pulled through. Fuck. Yeah. So. All right. Just saying. My personal peripheral experience with curanderas. I loved that. I know. So Chris goes and meets with a curandera and tells her everything that's been going on. And she tells him that she's going to do an egg cleansing on him, which from the reenactment seems similar to like similar in principle to the coconut thing. Okay. Yeah. So in the reenactment, she tells Chris to close his eyes and the curandera grabs an egg and holds it in front of Chris while whispering prayers. And it's just kind of like moving the egg like in front of like different parts of his body. Cool. And when she's done, she tells Chris that he can open his eyes and she takes the egg and cracks it open and pours it into a bowl. Chris said, quote, the egg yolk had like a bubble that looked like an eyeball, <gasps> end quote. What? hmm <sighs> And upon seeing this, 
the curandera suggested that someone could be doing some sort of witchcraft on Chris. And she told Chris to go back to his apartment and to find something that didn't belong there. And Chris was like, what am I looking for? And she told him that he would be able to tell what it was because he would be able to feel the darkness coming off of it. This is insane. Girl, this is insane. Okay. I fucking know, girl. I know. I somehow have not seen this Paranormal Witness episode, and I am flabbergasted right now. Girl, uh, I know. (sighs) Okay. And she tells him that it's likely to be a religious item or something related to a ritual, like a voodoo doll, but that it could really be anything, but that when he found it, he would know immediately that that was the thing. And Chris is like, that when he moved in, he cleaned the apartment top to bottom. So he's like, whatever this is has to be hidden really, really well. So he gets home and he starts with the closet and he opens the closet door and he starts at the top and he starts pulling everything out, looking at everything. And he's making his way to the bottom and he sees a small opening in the floorboard and he pulls out the floorboard and he sticks his hand in and he finds a black box wrapped in a black cloth. No, this is bad. This is huge red flag. No, mm-hmm. if it had like unicorns on it or something, I'd be like, all right, maybe it's okay. But like, yeah, like a Lisa Frank. Yeah, no. Like a Lisa Frank trapper keeper. I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> this is not going to be a good situation. Also, this woman knew. She knew it was there. Girl. He didn't even fucking know. That's what the fuck I'm saying. Okay. Girl. I am just, I am, a, I am aghast. I don't even know what I am. <sighs> I fucking know. Chris said, quote, it looked like something with dark energy in it. It did feel like that. That's what I was looking for. It looked something evil. So I take a deep breath and I open the box. And the first thing I see is a hooded skeleton, a card of the Santa Muerte, end quote. So. Okay. I thought I was like, oh my God, if there is a baby skeleton in here that they put a hood on, I'm going to lose my shit, Monique. So for those who don't know, Santa Muerte, or Saint Death, or Holy Death, is represented by a cloaked female skeleton clutching a scythe. And there has become this kind of cult around Santa Muerte. And she was traditionally the saint of criminals and drug traffickers. Bitch knew how to party, apparently. Well, yeah. So, but, so the thing is, is that her, apparently her appeal lies in her non-judgmental nature, in that she's supposed to grant wishes in return for, like, pledges or offerings of like fruits or tequila and that at many like drug cartel murder scenes or like crime scenes they would find altars to Santa Muerte or like these like cards these prayer cards to Santa Muerte but the thing is she's no longer just popular for criminals and and those in drug cartel she's also become popular for the most marginalized sectors of society including immigrants and the LGBT community and she's just basically known to like get shit done that apparently, so like in Latin American culture, St. Jude, who's the patron saint of hopeless causes, is very popular. You ask St. Jude for, for something and he's supposed to deliver. But allegedly, like people in Mexico are like, I used to be down with St. Jude, but Santa Muerte gets shit done and she gets it done like really quickly. But she's also, and she's like totally down to be like, like I, I remember reading a story about a woman whose son was killed by like a drug trafficker. And then she prayed to Santa Muerte to be like, give them, you know, something worse than death. And like Santa Muerte allegedly like came through and then the drug trafficker is like in this like terrible coma for like years. And she's like, yeah, fuck that guy. And like all, yeah, yeah. 
there has been large-scale opposition to Santa Muerte coming from both the Mexican government and the Catholic Church. The Church in Mexico and the Vatican forbid worship of Santa Muerte. Cardinal Gianfranco Ravasi, head of the Vatican Pontifical Council for Culture, declared, quote, it's not a religion just because it's dressed up like a religion. It's a blasphemy against religion, end quote. And that it is, quote, in direct opposition to the teachings of the church and proper worship, end quote. And even though the Catholic Church and the Mexican government, because the Mexican government is seeing how, you know, these cartel murders are also tied to Santa Muerte, are like, so they like decry her, her worship. The cult of Santa Muerte is the fastest growing cult in the Americas. In the last 20 years, she has between 10 million and 12 million followers. Damn. For perspective, there are 14 million Jews in the world. And this is just in the last 20 years. That is insane. But I mean, if she's this efficient, like I kind of get it because I'm not going to lie. When you were talking about her, I was like, hmm, maybe I should uh, look into this here. I like a bitch who gets shit done. I mean, so like one of the first episodes we did, I talked about like the black candle, like the death candle, like it was a Santa yeah. Muerte. Like, so th- she has multiple candles. Love a good candle, Monique. Alleged, like, you know, there's like a green candle for money and like, but the black candle is supposed to be like to wish death upon an enemy. <gasps> okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I-, I wouldn't go quite that far. Right. I don't have anyone who's at that level for me, but you know. I mean, no comment for me, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much for that, for the record. <laughs> I love you. So Chris said, quote, all I knew about Santa Muerte was that it was a renegade Catholic saint worshipped by murderers and criminals. I get the gut feeling that it's looking back at me. I slammed the box shut and I called the curandera and she said, bring it to me, end quote. Weirdly, that gave me chills. I don't know why, but just like, yeah, ugh. I mean, yes, yeah. So he does, and she told him that she had to do a ritual to dispose of it and that she would handle it. And at this point, Chris has been living in the apartment for eight months. But now that the Santa Muerte is gone, he's hoping that all of the activity would stop. The weekend came, and it was his turn to have his son, Alec. And Alec never wanted to come to Chris's apartment. Whenever it was his turn to have Alec, he always wanted to go to their cousin's apartment or the grandmother's apartment. So you can imagine his pleasant surprise that Alec wanted to come over, and Chris was so happy. The two spent the day together. Then, at around 8 p.m. that evening, Chris read Alec a story, and he drifted off to sleep. Chris was doing things around the apartment and fell asleep in front of the TV. After a few hours, he woke up and turned off the TV. Then all of a sudden, he heard a noise, like someone trying to get into the apartment. At first, he thought it was Guillermo, who had been out drinking with friends, but when Chris looked through the peephole, no one was there. So Chris is like, okay, that's weird. And then the TV turns on by itself. And again, he hears the door rattling like someone is trying to get in. And at this point, Chris is terrified, thinking that someone might be trying to break into his apartment. So he turns off the TV. He goes to the door to see who it might be. And as soon as he turns, the TV turns on by itself yet again. And Chris is like, what the fuck is going on? So Chris unplugs the TV from the wall And again, the sounds of someone trying to break into the door continue. And Chris continues thinking that it's someone trying to get into the apartment. So Chris, again, turns to go to the door to see who might be trying to come in. And the TV, which Chris has unplugged from the wall, turns on by itself. No, no, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no. I've had goosebumps for the last fucking five minutes, Monique. Absolutely not. 
this this house should already be in flames. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris said, quote, I felt dizzy, like I was in another dimension. Then I heard a sound I'll remember for the rest of my life, like claws, end quote. And that's when Chris sees a shadow dragging and clawing itself on the floor behind him. Girl. No. Uh-huh. This poor man. I this poor I and having to live with the knowledge that you've seen this and that it's just it sounds so crazy that most people will not believe you and will think you're insane. Totally. <sighs> then Chris hears his son say, quote, tell it to go away, dad. <gasps> End quote. Girl. I kind of hate you for how many chills you've given me. Jesus. I know. Girl, I'll give you myself the same amount of chills. And I know everything that's happening in the story. <sighs> Alex sees it too. Because guess the fuck what? All those times Alec didn't want to go to his dad's apartment isn't because he hated Chris. It's because he was seeing shit too and having unsettling experiences in the apartment too. So Chris is terrified. And granted, he has to pass this thing to get out of the apartment. And yeah. Oh no. Oh no. There's this thing in his fucking apartment and he wants to protect his son and he starts praying. Chris said, quote, I felt a rush of energy. I grabbed my son and we ran away, end quote. They get in the car and they go to the only place that he could think of, which was his mother's house. And he hoped that whatever was in the apartment would just stay far away from them. So Chris ends up telling his brother everything and his brother informs him that he looked into the apartment and given all the information that Chris told him, concluded that the apartment had been used as a drug safe house. And Chris was convinced that something really horrible had happened in that apartment to make it as haunted as it was. And he wanted to know what it was. Chris's brother told him that it was possible to detect blood using a black light. So Chris went back to the apartment with a black light and the apartment just lit the fuck up. I was going to say, this is going to be like a fucking, Mm -hmm. ugh, no, I can't. Chris said, quote, it was like somebody had taken a bucket full of it and just splashed it against the wall. Could it have been a drug dealer getting killed there? We heard stories of people being decapitated or tortured to death, offered for sacrifice. Just, it all made sense. We got out of there as quickly as we could. We never went back. End quote. He told his brother his findings, but his brother didn't pursue any leads or start an investigation. While he was certain that some sort of ceremony or ritual type of murder had happened at the apartment, Chris said, quote, There are still people that are executed almost every day in Juarez. So to him, it wasn't anything that was worth looking deeper into. This was only one case in a whole city where you have 40 homicides per day, end quote. When asked what he's taken away from this terrifying experience, Chris said, quote, I didn't used to believe in these things. I thought it only happened to people who were weak-minded or had nothing else to do. This incident has got me closer to my faith, to the church, and as a result, that's the good side because it has made me a better parent And it just taught me to value my family, my wife, and my kids more, end quote. And that is the crazy as fuck story of Chris Garibay and his apartment in downtown Juarez. Holy fuck. Girl. Uh, It's my favorite when they're skeptical and then that this is the thing that like changes their entire worldview. I mean, 10,000%. And then just to be in a situation where you're like, I'm literally paying two rents and I can't fucking leave. Ugh. Like, no. So I, it has to be 
something in my head because it can't be that my apartment's fucking haunted. This was horrifying. What was this episode titled? Uh, The Saint of Death. Okay. Yeah, I somehow have missed this Paranormal Witness episode and I'm glad I didn't watch it because this was amazing. Yeah, it's season three, episode 10. It's wild. So crazy. Mm -hmm. Good to know about the egg. And uh, yeah, if you got one of those ladies, I cannot pronounce. Curandera. Yeah, hook hook me up. Let me know. <laughs> I've never, I mean, you know what? I should have fucking hit one up for my fucking lung infection. Be like, hey, girl. Yeah, there you go. There's got to be. Pray some shit. Yeah, there's got to be a, a bunch in Manhattan. Come on. We have everything pretty much. I would imagine like Bronx, South Harlem, something like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm also doubly excited because we had like a smidge of a psychic sister thing going this week. Yes. I love it. And I'm always excited about that. I'm always excited. Yeah. So you ready to get into it? I'm so fucking ready, girl. Let's go. Okay. So the one other thing I did watch this week, which was for my story that I didn't want to ruin at the beginning of the episode, was Tiller Russell's 2018 documentary titled Operation Odessa, which if you have not watched it, is very entertaining and I highly recommend it. Like, it's just a fun watch. What uh, platform is it on? Oof rough. Sorry. I had to buy it on iTunes because I could not find it anywhere, but I, I shelled out the, the, whatever it was, the eight bucks for it. Worth it for the record. Cool. Additional sources, thedailybeast.com, dea.gov, cbsnews.com, newyorktimes.com, justice.gov, and good old Wikipedia. Mm. Ludwig Feinberg was born on January 3rd, 1958 in the city of Odessa, which at that time was part of the Soviet Union. Ludwig eventually began going by the nickname Tarzan due to his long flowing hair. Oh, shit. Yes. Work. And this guy is a fucking personality. You know, we love a mane here. Oh, he's got the locks. All the pictures from the 80s are just nonstop hair. It's gorgeous. Glamour shot. Glamour shot. Glamour shot. Yep. So Tarzan, who was apparently a dentist in Russia, left for Israel in his early 20s where he served in the military before eventually moving to the United States in 1980. He settled in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, and in 1981, Tarzan landed his first job in America as an enforcer for the notorious Gambino crime family. Oh, shit. His specialty, he admits, with a certain amount of pride, was arson. But his main job was as a, quote-unquote, illegal collection agent, ensuring that those who owed the Gambino's money paid up. And Tarzan made very good money doing this. But when his partner was shot to death in his home, he took it as a sign that he should move on to something new. And when a few of his Italian mafia buddies in New York suggested he move to Miami, that's what he did. And Tarzan absolutely loved Miami. Between the warm weather, the beaches, and the beautiful women, he was in heaven. In 1991, Tarzan started his own business in Miami, a strip club named after his favorite movie of all time, Porkies. Are you serious? Girl, yeah, I'm 100% serious. Wow, okay. I mean, I had heard of it, but I never watched it. It did come out eight years before I was born. I mean, yeah, that's true. That is true. It's just like classic, like men behaving badly and women just exist to to be pretty things to look at their tits. I knew of like the famous scene where they like peep on the girls in the locker room, but that was it. I didn't know it was, I didn't know it took place in Florida. I didn't realize it was like, about a strip club, basically. I really only knew like that one scene. Yeah. So Porky's is a 1981 sex comedy film about a group of high school boys in Florida trying to lose their virginities in 1954. 
Their request leads them to a strip club called, yep, you guessed it, Porky's. And after being swindled by the sleazy owner, they set out to get revenge on him. Fun fact, Kim Cattrall took a small role in the film because she needed the money and was horrified when she saw her name at the top of the poster. She said, quote, people thought it was the end of my career, end quote. Oh, shit. Obviously, it wasn't. So good for her. Good for her. Obsessed with Kim Cattrall. Yeah. To give you an idea of just how raunchy the movie was, the film was originally banned in Ireland, but the decision was overturned a mere 19 days later. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Ireland is very conservative. Yeah. Oddly enough. I think divorce was legal in 1993. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You weren't allowed to get divorced in Ireland before 1993, I think. I don't think I realized that. Jesus. And yet abortion is legal there now. So crazy. Crazy. So Tarzan named it Porky's, one, because he obviously loved the movie, and Mm -hmm. two, because the movie was filmed in Florida about a strip club named Porky's. So that just seemed like good marketing. Obviously, yeah. But Tarzan wasn't just trying to have a run-of-the-mill strip club. He wanted to set himself apart from the competition. So he started hosting, quote-unquote, feature shows, where porn stars would come into the club for interactive performances. Ah, okay. One such show allowed customers to pay $5 each to drive dildos attached to remote control cars into the performers. Girl. Girl. uh, I know. Yes. I'm speechless. Yes. This was a thing you could do in strip clubs in the 80s, apparently, in Florida. Florida's wild. I mean, yes. (laughs) We've never learned anything in our entire lives. It's just Florida's fucking wild. Florida's wild. Now, in the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, while Miami was still dealing with the remnants of the cocaine wars, Russians started coming to Miami in droves from both Russia and New York. And when they found out that it was a Russian guy who owned Porky's, they immediately made the club their go-to place to hang out. Hundreds of Russian guys, most of whom had connections to Russian gangsters, frequented the club. There's a huge Russian population in Miami. Yeah. Yeah, and Sunny Isles. Like a yeah, like Sunny Isles. Like my my doctor, my my general practitioner was like Russian, like from Russia. I, I feel like in Tampa too, there kind mm. of was. I feel like they even like have some of the architecture style in certain places too, weirdly. Oh. Maybe I'm remembering incorrectly, but I believe that's true. Tony Galetta, who was the manager at the time, said it was the roughest club he had ever worked in. And his wife, who was one of the bartenders, said it was definitely a place you could get killed. Jesus. Girl, I know. Like, it's fun. We have feature shows. Don't worry about it. And again, the place is called Porky's. Like, it just doesn't sound like it should be a dangerous place, but... Right, because Porky's is insane and ridiculous. Yes. In fact, according to Tarzan, he always had two guns on him, a Beretta 9mm and a Colt. With the huge popularity of his club and his history with the mafia in New York, Tarzan became the go-to guy for everything. Whether you wanted drugs, women, or someone killed, he became known as the guy who could make it happen. Do you know Do you know where in Miami Porky's was? Hialeah, I think. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I read that at the very last minute, and then I was like, oh, shit. At this time, news stories began to emerge in Miami about the Russian mob targeting South Florida. These Russians were, quote, crafty and brutal, end quote, according to one report, and the authorities were starting to get concerned these organized criminals were going to start working with the Colombian traffickers mm. and give them access to the military hardware the Russians had. 
Knowing this would be a great threat, they started putting together a task force to investigate Russian and Eastern European criminal activity in South Florida. There was an FBI task force, as well as a multi-agency side, which included the Marshal Service, the DEA, U.S. Customs, U.S. Immigration, the Coast Guard, and several local law enforcement agencies. This investigation became known as Operation Odessa. Through Operation Odessa, the feds became aware of Tarzan's friendship with a man named Juan Alameda, a Miami playboy who had known connections to the Colombian cartels. Juan was a tall, well-dressed man who was not only well-spoken, but very shrewd and very intelligent. He was also a very successful businessman. He sold exotic cars and boats and owned a marina in Miami. And Juan was known for taking assets, mainly boats, from traffickers before they went to prison and hiding them. But most of the time, by the time they got out of prison, Juan had already sold the boats. But according to Juan himself, he was such a great salesman that even if they confronted him, by the end of their conversation, he would have already sold them another boat. (laughs) Oh my God. Which I love. Honestly, I know these are like not good people. They're criminals, but like these are dudes I would hang out with. They seem like really fun and really chill. (laughs) They're very charming. All of them. I mean, I like, I'm not a good salesperson at all. And I'm just very like... I'm very impressed by people who can just do that. Right? And who just know how to manipulate you to do shit. I don't know that I have that skill. I feel like I, if a cartel member was like confronting me about selling their boat, I would totally panic. And I'd be like, I'll just give you another boat for free. Like, it's cool, dude. We're, we don't need to have a problem. 10,000%. I'm not going to sell them the boat. That's insane. Yeah. I'd be like, no, I'll just take your money again. I'll take it twice. Thank you. Yeah. The cojones. I don't. I mean. I do not have them, girl. <laughs> girl, same. Now, believe it or not, Juan was introduced to Tarzan by none other than Vanilla Ice. Because I know this story is so insane. I could not handle it for one second. Because in addition to being the go-to club for Russian gangsters, Porky was also the spot for the rich and famous. Everyone from basketball players to Sting, apparently. And of course, Vanilla Ice. Girl. Girl. I know. I can't. So one night, Vanilla Ice asked Tarzan if he would take his speedboat to repaired and told him to take it to a marina that his friend Juan Alameda owned called the Fort Apache Marina. The marina was known as an executive playpen for the rich and famous, and its regulars included Julio Iglesias, the whole Miami Vice crew, and even Gloria Estefan. Oh. So Tarzan went to the marina where he met with Juan. Tarzan described Juan as a lovable person, a great talker, and a good-looking guy, and said, quote, I loved that guy from the beginning, from the first minute, and we hit it off, end quote. The first time Juan met Tarzan, he said he, quote, struck him as an oddball, end quote. But Tarzan was charming and personable and quite the character, and the two immediately became not only friends, but business partners. Now, as you can probably imagine, the marina wasn't just a destination for the rich and famous. It was also a place that drug runners often hung out and used to facilitate getting cocaine and drugs into the country. And while Juan was aware of what was going on, he operated under a don't ask, don't tell policy and didn't care what they were doing as long as they didn't tell him anything about it. Sure. Plausible deniability. Yep. However, Juan also had his own connections to the Colombian cartels and used those connections to keep his exotic car business going. For example, when the Mercedes SL500 first came out in Europe, 
Juan flew to Switzerland, bought a bunch of them, loaded them up on a cargo plane, and flew them to Cali, Colombia. So the cartel had the SL500 before it even came out in America. Holy shit. Yeah. These guys are insane. I'm not going to lie. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, law and order was lost. No one knew who was in charge. And according to Juan and Tarzan, it was a complete free-for-all. And the two of them saw their chance to make a killing by buying up Russian goods and selling them to the Colombians for a hefty profit. So they planned a trip to Russia to purchase a bunch of motorcycles. And when they arrived in Moscow, they realized that everything was for sale. Literally everything. So they realized they have to run a helicopter to get to the dealership. And Tarzan made a few calls and was directed to a military base. When he inquired about renting one, they told him they never rented the helicopters, but that they had 400 of them just sitting there. So they'd see what they could do. So they talked about it for a little bit, gave him a call back. And when they did, they were like, look, it's going to be very expensive. You're probably not going to want to do it. And told him that for them to rent an MI-17 military utility transport helicopter with three pilots, it was going to cost them $500, which for Tarzan and Juan was like dirt cheap. They're like, I'm sorry, what? And the Russians are like, it's going to be way too expensive. You're not going to want to pay it. Right. Because this is like, you know, has has uh, the Soviet Union collapsed at this point? No. Yes. Yes. OK. So they have nothing. No, exactly. So they're like, yeah, we think we could swing that. Don't worry about it. Tarzan's like, I have like five times that in my fucking pocket right now. Literally, like we're good. So they rent this helicopter, but they didn't know where the dealership was exactly. So they landed in the middle of the city to ask for directions. And apparently no one was phased in the least by this. Literally, they saw an old woman were like, hey, where's the dealership? And she just casually pointed them in the right direction. It was like, you need to fly that way. They're like, have a great day. What is this life? (gasps) Insanity. I cannot imagine this. (laughs) No, not for a single fucking second. Just imagine like a helicopter landing in the middle of Central Park and then being like, hey, um, we're trying to find the Empire State Building. Like, do you guys know where to go? We're like really lost. And people just being like, it's over there, downtown. Good luck. Although if anyone would be unfazed, it'd be New Yorkers, for sure. That's actually true. That's actually true. New Yorkers and Russians, man, just unfazed. Dude, I mean. As soon as they landed at the dealership, however, the police arrived and were like, who the fuck are you? (laughs) Right. Tarzan just told them that they were from Moscow, which that was apparently the magic words because the police then immediately asked them what they needed them to do for them. So Tarzan and Juan are like, you can just watch the helicopter. That'd be great. They bought 250,000 motorcycles for $200. And I rewound this because I was like, they mean $200 a piece, right? And I, they don't say that. I'm pretty sure they bought all of them for $200. Okay, wait, I, I need to do the math on this. So it's 250,000 motorcycles for $200? For $200. It's 0.0008 cents a motorcycle. Insane. Insane. My, my brain is broken. I don't understand this. I don't understand. It makes no sense. That's why. It's insane. This is literally the the thing in, in fucking, in the Brady Bunch sequel, where she's like gifted the fucking like multi-million, like the multi-million dollar like horse to the, the Rotary Club to sell in the fucking auction. And the guy who's trying to swindle them is like, oh, an auction where like Sotheby's? Like, no, it's like the church, the local church. Like, oh, but oh, Roy, like bidding starts at It's like, it's worth like a hundred million dollars. Like $50 is fine. They're like, we got it. Thanks. It's insane. 
Juan ended up selling them for $3 million to the Colombians and obviously gave Tarzan a very nice finder's fee. So like the profit margins are just chef's kiss. Yeah. Things were going so well for Tarzan that he decided to open up a restaurant in the North Miami Beach area called Babushka. And between the restaurant and the strip club, he was getting the bulk of the Russians who were coming to South Florida. One of those Russians was a notorious gangster named Gregory Roizos, also known as Grisha. Apparently, he and Tarzan had grown up together in Russia, and Tarzan considered him like an older brother to him. According to the feds, though, Grisha was the worst kind of thug that you could find and had earned himself the nickname Cannibal because when he was being arrested in New York, he literally bit off the arresting officer's nose. What the fuck? That is a huge overreaction to being arrested. Holy fuck. Girl, I fucking know. It's insane. And you come home from work to your wife or your husband or whatever, and it's like, hey, babe, what happened to your face? It's like some dude bit my fucking nose. <laughs> oh, like worst day ever. <laughs> Literally. The feds had caught him on a heroin trafficking charge, and he was facing life in prison. So when he was released on bail, he immediately fled the country. But Interpol eventually found him in Bulgaria and threw him in jail. When the DEA heard about it, they sent an agent from Vienna to meet with Grisha in prison. The agent noticed that he had no teeth. And when he asked, Grisha told him that the officers had kicked them all out during his arrest, which that is like something that will give me nightmares forever. I'm not going to lie. Oh, my God. Yep. So obviously he like wanted to get the fuck out of there. So the agent made him a deal. He said that they knew he was associated with heroin traffickers internationally and said if he was willing to help them take them down, that they would get him out of there. And after the teeth kicking incident, Grisha was willing to do anything to get out of there. Mm -hmm. So Grisha went on a quote unquote vacation to Miami and met up with his old friend Tarzan. And after seeing Tarzan's operations, told him he wanted in. At that time, Tarzan was in debt with his restaurant, Babushka, and was short on cash. So while he didn't really want to sell a piece of the restaurant to Grisha, when Grisha offered to buy a percentage of the restaurant and run it for him, Tarzan agreed. So Grisha went and got 70 grand from the feds and gave it to Tarzan. Grisha began managing the restaurant and under the guise of his job, began taking photos of their guests and putting them up in the restaurant. But he was also giving copies to the feds so that they knew who was coming and going. He also let them in one night so they could place wiretaps in some of the booths. It was through those wiretaps that Tarzan's connection to Cuban drug trafficker Nelson Yester, a.k.a. Tony, was discovered. A fugitive at the time, Tony was an international smuggler with connections to the Colombian cartels. Tony was apparently a Cuban Secret Service agent, which, like, they don't really go into this. And I'm, I could not really find anything about it online, but they just, like, dropped that in. Okay. In addition to being a major distributor for the Medellin cartel and working directly for Pablo Escobar, his reputation was that he was extremely violent and dangerous. He was once caught with 41 passports and featured on his own 1999 episode of America's Most Wanted. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I love it. Casual. You're like, I have my own episode of America's Most Wanted. Don't worry about it. You know, kind of a big deal. Just saying. But according to Tarzan and Juan, Tony was the brain of any operation they did. Now, at the time of the documentary in 2017, Tony was still a fugitive and on the run. And both Tarzan and Juan said that he would 
never talked to the documentarian. But lo and behold, they were able to track him down and interviewed him in a private plane at an undisclosed location in Africa. Oh, shit. According to Tony, being a player was his destiny. He arrived in Key West in May of 1980 and within one year had made his first million dollars selling cocaine. Oh, shit. He met Juan when he went to buy a Ferrari and the two hit it off immediately. In 1990, Tony was charged with cocaine trafficking and fled the U.S. and had been on the run since then. But he knew how to disappear and even taunted the feds by sending them postcards from where he was. Like, miss you guys, wish you were here, lol. Oh my god. The balls. Dude. I know. I'm not gonna lie, part of me was like, I'm weirdly here for that. That's a fucking move. It's it's a boss move, for sure. It's such a boss move. That is the, like... <laughs> The zero fucks of just zero fucks. I don't even know. Yeah, totally. It's insane. Then one day, Juan was at the marina when two guys pulled up in a Lamborghini and asked to buy two cigarette boats. When they went to the office to do the paperwork, however, they saw brochures on his desk for some Russian helicopters he was trying to acquire. They were very interested and asked him to get them for the Colombians. And since the cartel in Cali knew that Tony knew all the players involved, they asked him to keep an eye on things to make sure everything was on the up and up. Tony asked Juan to introduce him to Tarzan. So two days later, Juan and Tarzan flew to Venezuela to meet Tony face to face. When the documentarians asked Tony what he thought of Tarzan, he said, quote, he looked like a fucking Russian bear. I say this fucking guy is trouble. But man, I have to tell you, two minutes later, I just loved that trouble. 30 minutes later, I was fucking laughing. One hour later, I just didn't want him to leave Caracas. I just wanted him to stay with me, end quote. So like, that is Tarzan's personality. Like he is very winsome. It's, I get how he got as far as he did. And the feeling was mutual. Tarzan said he loved Tony right away. After the meeting, Juan and Tarzan got the green light from Tony and flew to Moscow for the helicopter deal. The helicopters were known as the Kamov KA-32s, They were unique helicopters with two rotors that could carry a big payload. Based on the max cargo limit, one helicopter could easily pick up 5,000 kilos of cocaine. Oh, shit. They arranged to buy two of those helicopters for $650,000 each. Those same helicopters in the U.S. would have cost around $10 million apiece for the record. Juan then chartered an Antonov 24, a military aircraft bigger than a 747, to transport the helicopters and a bunch of motorcycles he had also bought to South America. Juan flew ahead to deal with the Cali cartel, while Tarzan stayed behind to escort the helicopters. But as the plane was heading down the runway, ready to take off in what was apparently blizzard-like conditions, because it's fucking Russia, a bunch of guys with machine guns showed up and stopped them from taking off. Turns out they were with the Russian mob, and they wanted their cut. Tarzan told him he wasn't going to give them money, but that he could give them cocaine. He said, quote, I just came out of nowhere. I was playing a game. I didn't have no connection to cocaine. I didn't have nothing, but I just needed to talk, end quote. And the guys were like, whoa, you can get cocaine? Tarzan asked them if they knew Pablo Escobar, which they obviously fucking did. Yeah, everyone fucking did. And he told them that he was his partner and that he could make a phone call right now and get him on the phone. Meanwhile, Juan is in Cali waiting for the plane when he gets a call from Tarzan. 
When he answered, Tarzan called him Pablo and told him they had a problem in Russia. It's like, hey, Pablo Escobar, how are you doing? Living your Pablo Escobar life? Yep. I have people want to talk to you, Pablo Escobar. And Juan is immediately picking up what he's putting down. And he's like, I'm not gonna be like, dude, you know you called Juan, right? Like, who, who the fuck is Pablo? He's like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. So he told him they have a problem in Russia and Juan, aka Pablo, needed to get to Russia tomorrow or he was a dead man. So Juan jumped on a flight to Moscow as Pablo Escobar. Now, to be fair, Juan and Pablo do actually bear a striking resemblance to one another. So it's not really that far-fetched that he could pose as him. Okay. So Juan slash Pablo was taken to a boardroom with a bunch of guys in there. Tarzan addressed him as Pablo, and when he hugged him in greeting, he whispered in his ear and told him to act tough, be mean. So Juan presented himself like he knew Escobar would have. The mobsters told him they wanted to partner up with him and handle their cocaine distribution in Russia, and told him they'd take 50 kilos. And Juan slash Pablo is like, are you fucking with me? You made me come all the way to Moscow to talk about 50 kilos of cocaine? Like, 50 is a joke. (laughs) It would take the same amount of time to pack 50 as it would 2,500 or 5,000 kilos. So he's like, here's what we're going to do. You get me a safe house. I'll bring some Colombians with the cocaine, obviously, and I'll put them in the house. And you guys can just pay as you go. So you don't need to buy all 5,000 kilos at once. (laughs) This is like a layaway. Literally. Like they're like, we'll just keep it there. And then whenever you're ready for more, you can come show up and get some. You don't have to give us all the money right away. But he was like, but you need to move it. Like, I can't just let all this sit in the house if you're not going to move the product. Right. But these guys thought this was an absolutely brilliant idea. So they agreed. And Juan and Tarzan were able to finally leave Russia with the helicopters. When the plane with the helicopters landed in Cali, it wasn't just the talk of the town. It was the talk of all of Colombia. And being able to deliver on a deal like that, they immediately made a name for themselves. Doors were opening for them, and Tarzan was suddenly rich beyond his wildest dreams. It was at this point that the feds decided that they needed to get an undercover agent in to see what was really going on. So they sent in a DEA special agent named Alex Yasevich, who happened to grow up in Brighton Beach, where both Tarzan and Grisha had lived. Although Alex had never been friends with Tarzan, he had seen him around the neighborhood and knew Grisha very well. So Grisha introduced Alex to Tarzan as their trusted man in New York. Like, hey, you remember him. We grew up with him, which honestly didn't really matter to Tarzan. All he cared about was that Grisha had vouched for him because to him, Grisha was family. But you got to remember, Grisha is working for the feds. Right. Alex told Tarzan that he was into heroin and weapons trafficking, but he wanted to expand his operations to cocaine, which was why he was in Florida. On March 17th, 1995, Alex invited Tarzan to the Miami Fountain Blue Hotel for a meeting. He made sure Tarzan sat in a certain chair since they had a camera disguised an alarm clock pointed at that seat. But Tarzan wasn't a complete fool. He looked right at it, pointed, and said, there's a camera in there. Because apparently Tarzan and Juan had been, quote unquote, playing spy games. There was a spy store in downtown Miami and Juan and Tarzan like would just go and shop around and look at stuff and get stuff because that was what they were into. And Tarzan said he had seen the exact same alarm clock camera in that store. Mm. But Alex immediately denied it, saying, no, there's no way. But Tarzan insisted. And Alex just doubled down, saying, don't insult me. If you want to look and take it apart, be my guest. And somehow this show of bravado convinced Tarzan, who was like, okay, I guess I'm wrong. 
and just continued the meeting. Oh, no, I would have taken that shit apart. Right? I'd been like, okay, if you don't mind, I'll fucking... I'd been like, all right, like, okay, we're tossing it out the window. It's fine. We don't need this. Let me whip my screwdriver out. Cool. Yeah. Hubris, thy name is Tarzan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> After the meeting, Alex met with his contact and told him, you're never going to believe this, but they're getting ready to purchase a Russian sub for the Colombians. He learned that Tarzan was working with Tony on the submarine deal and that Tony was the connection to the money for the sub. Apparently, Tony had been approached by some very important people who told him they wanted to get a submarine. Tony told them he could get it, but wanted to know what they were going to do with it. Because if they were going to use it, it would have to be for a very big job. Like, they're not going to use a sub to transport 5,000 kilos when they could use one of the helicopters instead. But... They told him that they wanted to make a very big delivery and told him they planned to transport 40 tons of cocaine with it. Holy shit. So 40,000 kilos of cocaine. They asked him how much he thought it was going to cost, and he told them $50 million. They thought that was insane, but he made the argument that if they're selling a kilo for $1,000 and transporting 40 tons, then they're making $40 million on the first trip, which would basically cover the cost of the sub. They eventually settled on 35 million, 30 for the sub, and five for expenses. So Tony met with Tarzan and Juan to discuss the submarine deal. And Tarzan was like, you got it, I'm on it. So Tarzan called up his friend Misha, who was living in St. Petersburg and was a general director of a factory. And he was like, look, I know this is gonna be a strange question, but is it possible to buy a military submarine? Misha was like, okay, I'll look into it and get back to you. So he called him back two days later And he told him the answer was yes. Whichever one they wanted, however many they wanted. Oh, shit. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I literally. After telling Tony the good news, Tarzan called Juan and told him to prepare himself for trouble because they were going back to Russia. After they arrived, the three of them met with the captain of the sub as well as some Navy admirals. And all of them said, no problem. You can totally get a submarine. (laughs) And also, would you like it with missiles or without missiles? So- They're literally just casually offering these drug traffickers nuclear weapons. Tarzan asked Tony if he could sell the nuclear weapons too. And Tony's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're just trying to get a submarine. Let's not get crazy here. Tony did have one stipulation though and told them that the only way they could get the money was if they could get on the sub first. Now, in almost any country that has submarine assets, submarine bases are the most closely guarded facilities. And even if you're a member of the armed forces of that country, you can't enter those bases without permission. But they were like, of course we can get you on a submarine. (laughs) Tony said, quote, I feel like fucking 007, end quote, and couldn't believe he was just walking around on a sub in some secret Navy base. Tony told Tarzan that they had to take pictures, though. Otherwise, they weren't going to get the money. They needed proof. He handed Tarzan his camera, and Tarzan was like, Tony, you're crazy. They're going to kill us. But Tony gave absolutely zero fucks So Tarzan went and asked the captain if he could take a few pictures. The captain said, absolutely not. Right. But Tarzan insisted, saying they really needed it and offered him $200, which was basically a year's salary for them. So while that sounds like nothing to us, that's a big deal there. And I'm sure it will come as no surprise that after the bribe, the captain readily agreed. Mm -hmm. So Tarzan took a picture of Tony in front of the sub then the captain, then someone took a picture of Tarzan and the captain in front of the sub. Like, 
they show them in the documentary. They took so many pictures, Monique. <laughs> There's so many pictures of them on the submarine. It's ridiculous. Don't want a paper trail. Fuck. Right? These are literally drug traffickers and criminals who had gotten access to a submarine base, which is absolutely unheard of. <laughs> After they came back to the States, they had the photos developed and whether it was foolishness or hubris once again, Tarzan just left them out on his desk. Alex, the undercover agent, saw them and, unbeknownst to Tarzan, helped himself to the photos. Mm -hmm. When they saw the photos, the feds immediately reached out to the Navy and got the Department of Defense and NATO involved. They showed them the photos and asked them to verify whether the photos had actually been taken at a Russian submarine base. And they were like, yep, that's for sure Russian submarine base. <laughs> Jesus. NATO's concern was because even though it was a noisy, old-fashioned diesel sub, all diesel subs can go electric because the diesel motors charge up the batteries for the electric motors. So once it went silent and underwater, it could very easily disappear. While Tony went to Columbia to show the buyers the photos, the DEA began questioning Juan back in Miami in an attempt to locate Tony. But here's the thing. They never really knew where Tony was. One day he'd be in Panama, the next Ecuador, and then they'd find out he was in Peru. Since he was a known fugitive, he was constantly on the move. But the DEA was willing to go to extreme length to lure him to the United States. Alex told Tarzan that he had access to quote-unquote clone phones. And since they had the ability to make calls overseas with no issues, Tarzan wanted one. So Alex got one from the Secret Service, which the FBI obviously put a wiretap on, and gave it to Tarzan. And Tarzan was just using the shit out of it, apparently. So every time he called overseas, which was all the time, the feds were recording everything. Through that phone alone, the DEA and FBI managed to get 15,000 hours of wiretaps. But Tarzan and Juan started to worry that the submarine deal was falling apart and told Tony that they should just take the money from the guys in Colombia and keep it for themselves. What they didn't realize is that from the very first meeting with the cartel, Tony had already been planning to do exactly that, but intended to keep the money for himself. Tony told the Colombians that it was a done deal and that they just needed to make the payment. He told them he wasn't going to make the full payment at once, that they'd pay them in three installations. So he just needed $10 million for right now, and then another 10 in two weeks, and then the rest of it two weeks after that. I would not steal from the cartel, just saying. I, like, never, ever, ever, ever. The cojones, I'm telling you, no! Like, that's how you die, Monique. That's how you end up dead, or worse. I mean, I wouldn't fuck with the cartel, period. I would never, I would never, ever, mm -mm, no. Mm -mm, no. Because you are a smart lady, and you know... You do not fuck with the cartel. I wouldn't do business with them. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't do any. I wouldn't be on the up and up. I would just be like, you're not an entity that exists in my life. Thanks. Go with God. <laughs> like, yes. And I'm definitely not going to fucking steal from them. Correct. Well, you, smarter woman than Tony over here. Yeah. Tony didn't get that memo. Tony did not get that memo. So they agreed and Tony flew to France and picked up two duffel bags filled with cash from the cartel. But instead of going to Russia to buy the submarine, he just took the money and immediately went on the run. He borrowed a friend's apartment in Amsterdam, paid him $10,000 to disappear for a while, and hid the money in his garage. Tony told him not to tell anyone he was there and to come back in two weeks. If everything was good, Tony promised that there would be another $10,000 waiting for him when he got back. A week later, Juan got a phone call from the Cali cartel. They said they wanted to meet and that they should go out for some drinks, like have some fun. So they went out 
drinking and partying like their old friends. The next day, they arranged to meet again, and they're like, look, there's some things we need to know, and we need your help. They told him that Tony had stolen the money and was on the run, but that they knew where he was. They just needed his help. Having no other choice but to agree, Juan was like, okay, what can I do? They said, you can start by telling us where his family lives. So Juan took them to the house where Tony's wife and children live. They wrote the address down and took some photos. And then seems like they just left. No one mentions that anything happened to them. So I really hope nothing did. I could not find any information that said it did. That would be a huge detail to over oversee. Yes. I feel like they would include that. Then they told Juan to talk some sense into Tony. They told him to tell him that they were watching him and that he wasn't going anywhere. Juan did as they asked and told Tony he was in a heap of shit with the cartel and that they had put a hit out on him. Tarzan and Juan were sure they were going to kill Tony because that's what they do if you cross them. Like, that's the only way they can get people to respect them. If you cross them, they will kill you. You don't just fuck over the cartel and get away with it. Juan told him they were looking for him everywhere and that he needed to disappear. Knowing that they're under investigation and convinced that they've been monitoring Tarzan's phone, Juan told Tarzan he needed to get rid of it. After he did, it became clear to the feds that Tarzan had somehow found out he was being investigated. So they decided they needed to arrest him. In 1997, they followed him as he dropped his daughter off at kindergarten. And as soon as he left the school, they pulled him over and took him into custody. Juan was in Moscow at the time, closing a $47 million deal for the Hella Taxi Company, when he heard from Tarzan's brother that Tarzan had been picked up the day before on a major cocaine distribution case involving submarines and that the police were also looking for him. During his interrogation, DEA agent Brett Eaton told Tarzan he was in deep shit. Tarzan argued that he hadn't sold anything, hadn't killed anyone, didn't steal from anyone, and hadn't done anything illegal. But according to the feds, by flying to Russia and negotiating for the submarine, he had contributed to furthering the conspiracy. Meanwhile, despite Juan warning him that there was a hit out on him, Tony decided to go after the next $10 million payment. So he flew to Madrid and called the guy he was supposed to meet. He told them he was taking a train from Barcelona and to meet him at the train station. But knowing they were likely going to try to catch him, when he called back, he lied and told them he was sitting in a taxi in front of the train station. He watched as they got in the taxi with some stranger and forced them to drive off. When they realized what had happened, they called him back. Like, uh, hey, where are you? And he was like, sorry, guys, you just missed me. Send my regards to those guys, though. So while he wasn't successful in getting the other 10 million, Tony was still on the run with the original 10. Well, Juan and Tarzan were back in Miami taking the fall. As you can imagine, the story made major headlines and was on the front cover of every major newspaper in the world. The story was even featured in Vanity Fair and Playboy. Oh, shit. Tarzan spent 18 months in jail before finally agreeing to cooperate with the feds to take down Juan. His testimony eventually allowed the feds to convict Juan for conspiracy to traffic cocaine. And in return for his testimony against him, the government allowed Tarzan to plead to a single count of racketeering with a sentence of 37 months of imprisonment, which he served. I actually think he served 30 of 37. Okay. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's not a lot. (laughs) Right. It's basically the whole thing. Yeah. Juan Almeida was set to receive 40 years in prison, but after Tarzan was deported to Israel, he recanted his testimony, and as a result, Juan's conviction was overturned. Holy shit. I know, dude. Tarzan said, quote, we did outsmart the FBI. We did outsmart the DEA. We even did outsmart the court, end quote. 
both Tarzan and Juan had escaped prison sentences and were living as free men. However, that didn't last long. Tarzan was eventually arrested and convicted of smuggling and racketeering, and by October 2012, he was in a Panamanian prison and awaiting trial for pimping, which was where he was when Russell got wind of the story. According to the documentarian, a DEA agent he knew called him and said, there's this true crime caper of a lifetime, one of the best I've heard in my career. There's a crazy Russian gangster named Tarzan who once sold a submarine to a Colombian drug cartel. He's locked up in a Panamanian prison and he has a Blackberry. Do you want his phone number? To which Russell responded with, (laughs) hell yes. I love he has a Blackberry. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's so insane. The story is so insane. It's insane. Tarzan was eventually released from the prison in Panama, but the prosecutor appealed and wanted to retry the case. When Tarzan found out the authorities were going to rearrest him, he fled Panama and made it to Costa Rica via boat. He hid there until he was able to get his passport stamped so he could leave Costa Rica. He then fled to Cuba before he eventually returned to Moscow. As far as I know, he's still there, and he is still banned from re-entering the United States. Although he was a fugitive on the run at the time of the documentary, in October 2017, Nelson Yester, a.k.a. Tony, was indicted in the Middle District of Florida for conspiracy to distribute marijuana and unrelated gun charges. He was arrested by Italian authorities on a provisional arrest request at the Fiumicino Airport in Rome, and in July of 2019, he was extradited to the United States. On August 11, 2020, Tony pled guilty and was sentenced to five years in a federal prison for conspiracy to distribute marijuana. Juan was eventually arrested on drug and weapons charges in January 2017 and was convicted and sentenced to six years in prison in 2018. At the end of the documentary, Tony admitted that by the year 2000, he was organizing another subdeal. And apparently he was successful because on September 7, 2000, a narco sub was found in a workshop in the center of Colombia, hundreds of miles from the ocean. The construction was nearly complete, and it was, and remains, the most elaborate and impressive narco submarine ever built. Tony said if they hadn't found it, the Colombians would have had, quote, a lethal weapon with the capability to do exactly what needed to be done, end quote. Holy shit. Girl, whether that was simply drug trafficking or something more nefarious, it's unclear. Tiller Russell spent seven years making the documentary Operation Odessa, the story of how three hustlers schemed to sell a Soviet submarine to a Colombian drug cartel for $35 million. That is the craziest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. I know, dude. The fucking documentary is bananas and just like very entertaining, very well done, very like stylized and love it. It's just great. All these guys are like so personable and charming and the interviews are really interesting. Like I know I summed it all up, but honestly, it's still worth the watch. Phenomenal. Amazing. Thank you so much for that story. Holy shit. Yeah, you're so welcome. I had a moment where I was like, did Monique tell me about this? Did we have a conversation about this? And I like got really paranoid in the middle of my story that I was like doing something you had literally told me to watch or something. So I'm so happy to hear that you hadn't seen this. No, I know. I knew 0% about this before you started speaking. Bananas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. (laughs) 
the audacity. <laughs> the audacity. But yeah, apparently they the Colombian cartel almost had a fucking submarine to transport cocaine to the United States. Like, I can't imagine that for one second. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else is like. It's fucking crazy. So crazy. Thank you so much for that story. Oh, my God. You're welcome. Thank you for your story. I, I might never be the same after it. And I think that gave me the most chills of any story you've ever done. Really? I mean, it's fucking crazy. It's fucking crazy what this dude put up with for like eight months or a year or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing crawling on the floor, really. And his son being like, tell it to go away. Uh-uh. No, no. Mm-mm. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez. And I'm Amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot period Amy. You should follow the show on the gram because we're going to put pictures up of all these peeps, including Tarzan and his wild mane. Yes. And uh, <laughs> all these sub pictures. Yes. Oh, my God. The sub pictures. Absolutely. You can find those on Instagram at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episode, we do a true listener tales episode where we read your crazy stories. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. Also, our hundredth episode is coming up. And to celebrate, we're letting you choose what we do our stories on. Uh, We did an Instagram poll and we got some responses. Uh, So we're going to put up a few more polls as well. We're going to put up a few more polls in the next couple weeks. So let us know what story you really want us to do. And maybe we'll do it. Uh, So be out on the lookout for that on Instagram. Uh, You could also DM us your suggestion or email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the unfucking. Guys, we're so obsessed with you. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.